Leading LDS is a nonprofit organization dedicated to enhancing leadership ability and capacity of lay leaders in order to accelerate the mission of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Leading LDS is not owned nor operated by the LDS Church, and any opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of any specific organization. All donations given to Leading LDS are tax-deductible and go towards the support of Leading LDS. For more information, visit LeadingLDS.org. A few years ago, I put together a list, a bucket list of sorts, of individuals I definitely want to get on the podcast. And I never did publish that list, but one individual on that list was Whitney Johnson. And I'm so grateful for Neil, who's probably listening to this, a listener in the Leading LDS audience, who sent me an email a few weeks back and said, hey, you should really interview Whitney. And I said, yeah, I know. Can you make a connection? And he did. He knows Whitney well. And uh, we started emailing and she was coming to Salt Lake. And so we lined up an interview with Whitney Johnson. Now, if you're not familiar with Whitney Johnson, you're probably familiar with somebody Whitney's worked with, who is Clayton Christensen, the Harvard business professor who is famous for his his books and research around disruptive innovation. And uh, Whitney actually worked with Clayton Christensen, who, uh, for those who don't know, is LDS as well. And they started a fund together to um, uh, all based around this concept of disruptive innovation. And we talked about that in our, our interview, but she's also the author of some exciting books, one that comes out here in a few months. But her sort of her flagship book that most people would know her by is Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. And so in this interview, we talk about a lot of things and uh, we're all over the place, but that's how I like the interviews that I do. We, we, it was interesting to hear about uh, Whitney's faith development, uh, sort of a a transition of faith she went through early on in her life and and how that how she got through that and especially with the support of her husband but then we delve into the concept she she's researched in disrupt yourself about how these apply to the church context how can a, a newly called bishop a newly called relief study president really create disruption not in a negative sense but in a good sense because disruption leads to change and how do we be agents of change as leaders in the quorums and groups that we serve in and it was a fantastic discussion i can't wait to share it with you but before we jump into the inner, be sure that you're uh, visiting leadinglds.org and clicking on the uh, donate button. We need your help. All we ask is a dollar a month for the content that we provide at Leading LDS. And But if you can afford $10, $20 a month, we need your help. Uh, there's also an option to just do a, a recurring yearly uh, donation, and that makes you a core leader. And there's options, additional content and resources that you'll have access to as a core leader. But this is really an organization made by the community of you listeners. And so without your help, we can't move forward. And so if you haven't yet taken the time to go to leadinglds.org and hit the donate button, please do so. And while you're there, be sure to join the newsletter because we have unique content that goes out in the newsletter that if you're not on the newsletter, you'll never see. So be sure to do that, leadinglds.org. And now here's my interview with Whitney Johnson. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Whitney Johnson. How are you, Whitney? I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, you, we're both in Salt Lake, and you're not from here, but we arranged this to do it in person. I prefer doing it in person when we can, and and here we are. Yeah. And and where where are you from? I live in Lexington, Virginia. My husband teaches at Southern Virginia University, oh, and right. it's just it's about three hours southwest of Washington D.C. And what I what I like to call a Mormon colony. Yeah. Because you've got this county of twenty five thousand people. And three very large family wards and one young single adult stake. So really? it is super fun. Someday we're going to have a temple there. In fact, that's my goal, to have a temple in, in Lexington, Virginia before I die. Nice. How far away is the temple now? About three hours. Okay. Uh, yeah, on a good day, three hours. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's the D.C. temple? Which is going to be closed. Yeah, so we'll be going to the temple in North Carolina, which I think is more like four hours away. So oh we will be quite a distance from a temple wow. for a few years. Now, the, the audience of Leading LDS is mixed. I think some will definitely be familiar with you and your work. But uh, what do people need to know about your background? About my background? So yeah. do you want to hear a little bit of my story? Would yeah. that be helpful? Absolutely. Okay. So I am... I grew up in California, in San Jose, California, pre-Silicon Valley, and okay. uh, went to BYU or came here to BYU, met my husband um, while we were still in college. Very typical, typical story, yeah. So typical. In <laughs> fact, in fact, we were in the same ward. We lived across the street from each other. One Sunday after he heard me playing the piano in sacrament meeting, cold called me and asked me to what was then a 14-stake fireside. Wow. I was not initially interested in him at all, though I thought he was <laughs> nice. But 
over about nine months later, I cannot believe I'm telling this on a podcast, but about <laughs> nine months later, he comes back from Maryland. He's been working on his family farm. He's lost 30 pounds as tan. I've gone to the airport with his best friend. On the way back, I stopped talking to his best friend. I talked to him. Four <laughs> months later, we're engaged. Really? How superficial. <laughs> so he had a transformation. Yes, he did. And, and suddenly looked like he looked a superhero. Like yeah, he and you know I always liked him, but now he was attractive yeah. as well, and so we got married about six to eight months later. Wow! So, well, that's great. Well, it doesn't matter how a you get there. Levity to start the, and now I'm happy to say that we've been married for 31 years. Oh, that's 31 great. years next month. Great. And how many kids? Two. Nice. And where are the kids at? In, in Our the oldest son just got home from a mission in Brazil, uh, in Campinas, and he is now at Utah State. And a freshman at 21 years old, he's studying business and studying languages. So he learned Portuguese. Now he's learning Spanish. Uh Really fun. And then we have a a daughter who's a junior in high school and getting ready to apply to colleges. And as you were being uh, raised, how would you, born into the church, I assume? Yes and no. Um, My mom, actually, I am, my great-great-grandfather was Ebenezer Bryce. So Bryce Canyon is named after him. Okay. Her family settled in Safford and Thatcher, Arizona. She's a Nuttle and a Bryce. But my mother had been very inactive when she got married. My dad was not a member. When I was about five years old, he was baptized. And so I remember getting my blessing. Oh, wow. I, get, I remember my baby blessing. Your baby blessing. And I also remember you were five. getting sealed in the temple. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's um, great. And the reason I say yes and no is because then as I graduated from college, my both of my parents again, became inactive. So, so I guess I was born in the church, yeah. sort of. Yeah. So, oh, actually, I have to tell you this because this is yeah, a great sure. story. Okay. <laughs> um, so my mom, super inactive in the church, and she sends us to preschool. We're living in San Jose, California at the time. She sends us to preschool. It was called, I won't tell you the name of the school. We come home and we're singing these songs like popcorn popping on the apricot tree. My mom's like, I recognize that song. Uh-huh. Turns out they were challenger preschools. So I credit primary songs with reactivating my mother. Oh my goodness. Because that's when we started going back to church. Now that she had two young children, I think she said she remembered how it felt to be a child and she didn't want to rear her children outside of the church. And so she reactivated. Wow. Just from those, those hymns, those, those primary hymns. Primary, primary songs. songs. And yeah. I... And I have on several occasions been a primary pianist because I was a music major and I, there's just nothing quite like primary songs. Interesting. So, and that was when you're preschool age. Uh And so from there on, you had a pretty traditional go to church every Sunday faith experience? Yes and no. So yeah, I went to, you know, I went to church every Sunday. Um, I went on a mission for, I was going to say for my church. Duh. (laughs) I went on a mission for our church um, to Uruguay. So Montevideo, Uruguay. And um, when I came home, and then I and I got married in the temple to my husband, who was now tan and you know and gorgeous and gorgeous. <laughs> um, and after we got married, I had a bit of a crisis that I think maybe you have to have a crisis at some point. I remember my therapist, and again, I'm saying that out loud because I think it's important. I think we need to destigmatize yeah, therapy. She had said to me that when you're in your 20s, you have to make a decision have to make a decision about whether you believe or not. Hmm. And Was this an LDS therapist? Yes. Or? Okay. At BYU. Okay. Her name is Leslie Feinauer. Shout out to her. She's now, this is so cool. She's now in Europe. She and her husband are missionaries, full-time missionaries, therapists. And all they do all day long, you should interview them if they'll interview, if they'll do it. All day long, talk to missionaries. Wow. Is that not the most fantastic yes, thing? Yes, that's because what we need. Because missions are so hard. Yeah. And you It'd be nice to have someone to talk to. to. Yeah. <laughs> that, that has some professional background. Yes. These things, right? Exactly. Wow. Okay. I totally derailed. So you got to get me back on track. You were in your 20s and she kind of told you, oh, you need yeah. to make the decision. So what I you had believe. a couple of years where like, basically I did not, I think I went to sacrament meeting barely. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, I had, you know, my, my parents had been active. They got divorced. And I think I was like holding it together and like, you know, I believed in the church and it was my rock and my foundation. Now all of a sudden I was married to this really good man and I had, I think, the luxury to rebel. Hmm. And so I went through this period of like, do I want to go to church? And, you know, and so my rebellion happened when I was like 25 and 26 years old. And to my husband's credit, he fasted for two years, sometimes two and three times a week 
that I would come back and be fully on board. Wow. And it worked. So I would imagine during that time with with your relationship with your marriage, did that was that strained or he was sort of letting you well, go through this? Well, what's interesting. So I hope all of this is helpful to your listeners. No, this um, is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting is that when we were engaged to be married, because my parents' marriage was so fraught, and I was so convinced that he was going to leave me, I kept trying to push him away and push him away. Like our engagement was not fun. And at one point... And you were doing this sort of test him? Or? Yeah, I was okay. totally testing okay. him. Like, if you're going to leave, I'm just going to make you leave now. Yeah. Better now than... than exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so he so he at one point was like, Heavenly Father, I am done. I am so done. I am not doing this. I don't want to marry her. And then he said three very important words. Well, not three. I don't know. Maybe more. I'm not going to marry her unless you want me to. Wow. And Heavenly Father said, I want you to. Hmm. And so he married me. And here you are. And here we are. <laughs> Still and our married. first couple of years were tough. Yeah. But when people sometimes talk about, and it's so fun because my husband's a bishop. He's been a bishop of a young single adult ward twice. So once in New York and Manhattan when wow. we lived there. And now in, um, in Buena Vista and SVU. And people sometimes say, well, like, what's your biggest accomplishment? And I oftentimes say the fact that I've been married for 31 years and we like each other. That's yeah. a huge accomplishment, yeah, it right? Is. It doesn't just happen. No. I mean, it's sometimes from the outside, people can think it just happens, right? Oh, they're just totally happy. Doesn't. and You yeah. have to make a decision to like, I think, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some people who are like every single second of their life, they're totally in love, but I actually highly doubt that. <laughs> I think you have yeah. to make a decision. And one of the things, one of the things, the real benefits, and sometimes there are extraneous circumstances. Like, you know, if someone is like really unfaithful or whatever, whatever, then you, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But I'm saying sort of guard variety marriages, you have to make a decision. And one of the things I think that's so helpful is that when you've made a covenant to God, when you get married, you take that much more seriously. And you're like, I promised God that I would stick this out. And there's no extraneous things happening. So we just have to work really hard to make this work. Yeah. And we have. Yeah, that's great. That's inspiring. And again, that's another area maybe needs some destigmatization is that marriage needs is hard and needs to be talked about. And yeah. And uh, need to go into that with your eyes wide open, I think. So during this, I'm intrigued by this. I don't know if you'd classify it as a crisis of faith or you were just uh, deciding what you believe in in your 20s. What pulled you out of that or or what happened from there? Um, uh, probably my husband's fasting. I don't know for sure. I think, I don't know, honestly, that it was entirely a crisis of faith because I've always believed in God. It mm -hmm. was more of, I felt like I was kind of rebelling. I, I was kind of doing a teenager thing like, hmm. you don't love me. I don't think God, do you really care about me? Like it was, it was me, it was me testing. Yeah. Because again, you know, most kids, if you're developmentally things are working, they're going to test when they're young. But for me, because my parents, you know, because of my family situation, I hadn't had the luxury of testing when I was young because I had to rely on God to hold it together. So now it was like, now I can test. Yeah. And now it was time to test. Yeah. And I think everybody has to have their testing time. Some people, it's going to happen when they're five, some 15, maybe some when they're 40. But I do think we have to have that period where we're like, okay, am I like, am I really good with God? Am I, am I doing this? Yeah. Because we all know that being a Mormon is, it's a thing. It's a commitment. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> right. It's not a casual thing. No. Right. Not yeah. at all. Right. Wow. And with that, uh, oh, what was I going to say with building off of that, the, oh, how would you, with your... When you think back at that time, what interaction and influence did, were your local leaders worried about you? Was your bishop worried about you or at least um, study president? That's a really good question. Let's see. I don't remember, so in my 20s, I don't remember any really pivotal interactions with yeah. my church leaders. They didn't sway you one way or the other. It was just... No, no, I, I, no, okay. not okay. really. And, uh, it, but it sounds like there wasn't like an event. You didn't, you didn't read a book or something no. that pulled you out of it. It was, it was gradual. It was the gradual. Your husband was fasting for you. And, right. and, and it sounds like he was being very patient. It wasn't like, listen, wh where do you stand in this marriage? I'm, no. Cause I'm in and you're not. No, and, we never, actually, yeah. it's interesting. Divorce was, we just didn't use that word, but it was, it was just a gradual thing. And I think probably what happened is, is, and I think this is a, a testament to sort of a lot of our relationships is when we're at our most level, unlovable, if, we will just stick with people and love them. Yeah. They will oftentimes just come around. Yeah. 
And I think that's an important story. I'm glad you shared it to, for leaders to hear because I know, you know, being a bishop and seeing people, you know, sort of in this uh, limbo of their faith, you want to want to step in, you want to yeah. give them resources, you want to encourage them. But sometimes it's just stepping back and loving yeah. them and fasting, you know, on the sidelines and, and gradually it comes back. And just saying, you know, it's interesting because I'm Laurel advisor now and, you know, the girls are at a really pivotal stage. Um, some of them don't know if they believe or not. I yeah. mean, it's very different for, like when I was in high school, it was, you know, which church do you believe in? Are you Lutheran? Are you Catholic? Are you Jewish? Are you Mormon? Right? Yeah. Now it's like, do you believe in God or don't you? I mean, these these girls, these kids are going through very different situations. And I remember when I first got called, I felt this need to like fix it. Like, how do I fix it? How do I make sure that mm. they get saved? Yeah. And I had a priesthood blessing from my husband not too long ago. And he said, Heavenly Father said through my husband, obviously, he said, your job is not to fix these girls. And remember what it was like when you were younger. You didn't need people. Actually, I'm just now remembering this. You didn't need people to fix it for you. You just need people to be angels for you. You just need people to like you, yeah. to say hi to you, to care about you, to just be interested in where you're going to college. You just needed people to care about you as a person, that you weren't a project, you weren't a statistic, you were just a person that they liked and they cared about. And that really changed it for me in being a Laurel advisor because I thought, I can do that. I can care about them. I can see them. I can like them. I can enjoy them but it's not my job to save them. And I think maybe that's also true for ecclesiastical leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a powerful leadership principle that I learned, you know, through my experience in, in church leadership that you do, you kind of feel like it's on my shoulders to save them, but we forget, no, 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 that's on Christ's shoulders right. and, oh, yeah. and that's done. He's doing right? that. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of those principles that I think everybody listening would probably, you know, nod their head in, in agreement, but the application of it is sometimes harder than than just stating that, right? And so- but it's just a uh, constant effort. Of, well, we have of to loving. keep relearning it, don't you think? Yeah. yeah Depending probably. on your calling, you just like yeah. keep learning it yeah. again. For sure. Let's put back a little bit to your um, professional career. You said you were a music major at BYU? I was. So how do you go from being a music major now writing business books? Yeah. So, so yeah, I studied a music major, emphasis on piano. We, two years later, after getting married, we moved to New York. My husband was getting his PhD at Columbia in microbiology. And so he's smart, not just handsome. He's smart. Yeah. <laughs> he's a really good guy, actually. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's going to be so embarrassed when he hears this. Anyway. We'll, we'll give him a chance to yeah, share exactly, his Exactly. To rebut. So we had to put food on the table and, and he was in school. So the person to put food on the table was me. And so I started, you know, working or I, I had to go out and get a job, but here I am a music major and I am, I'm a female <laughs> and it's the late eighties. Mm -hmm. And so the job I get is a secretary because mm. that's the job that we yeah. get still sometimes, but certainly in the late eighties, that was the case. And so I start working on wall street as a secretary. And one of the things that happened is I just started having this epiphany of like, okay, my husband, he's getting this PhD for seven years. Like it's probably going to take a long time. And if I can earn 10X, why would I earn X? Hmm. My mom had always worked. So I had that model in my head and I, it was an exciting time to be on wall street. You know, it was liars poker. It was working girl. You know, it was, it was fun. Bonfire of the vanities. And so I started taking business courses at night, had a boss who believed in me and allowed me to move up from being a secretary to investment banker. And then just really quickly, I'll give you the trajectory so we can go on to these ideas is step back from investment banker to an equity research analyst where I was covering stocks and, you know, this is a buy, this is a sell. Then I disrupted myself and I left Wall Street completely. Um, we were in Boston now at this point. I'm doing public affairs for Greater Boston, reporting into Clayton Christensen, who's the area authority at the time. Hmm. And connected with him and worked with him on public affairs really closely. And at the same time, he was doing some investing on the side of like buying Netflix, going short Blockbuster, and those trades were working. And so I thought, you know, I should create a fund. Well, he had never invested. His son was just out of business school. And so I co-founded an investment firm with him. And so that's where, that's the point in time where I really got steeped in the framework or the theory of disruption and my work 
I can talk to you about in just a minute yeah. builds on what I learned about the framework of disruption when I was doing the investing with Clayton. Yeah. And what a remarkable opportunity to work with Clayton Absolutely. Christensen. I mean, he's he's on covers of magazines if people don't know who right. he is. I mean, he's a, a mind of our time. Another person we need to get on the podcast, but uh, he's busy. But You um, should get him on. Yeah. I bet, you know what? I bet you he would. Okay. I really do. Well, we're going you for should it. go for it. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right. And so then when does that, and then, so you start this fund with uh-huh. Clayton Christensen and that, does that sort of project you out into maybe writing a book? Yeah, it's speaking? interesting. So around about 2006, so 12 years ago, this is, so I left Wall Street in 2005. I was an equity analyst. I was working at Merrill Lynch and I literally disrupted myself and I was like, I'm going to go do something else. And I had all these sorts of entrepreneurial things I was going to try. But about that same time, I started to blog. And when I started to blog, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to blog about. And this probably happened to you with leading LDS. Like you, you feel like you have something to say, but you also do it because you want to figure out what you have to say. Yeah. And yeah, in the absolutely. process of doing it, you figure out both. Well, this blog I started was really the idea of the importance of us figuring out what our dreams were. Because I found that I had gone out, I had accomplished this really exciting dream. And for a Mormon women in particular, this was unusual. And so I was so excited. I was like, I did this dream and it's amazing. And so I'd be talking to my friends because now I actually had time to talk to my friends. I was like, what's your dream? And a lot of them would say, well, I don't have a dream. And or if I did, I don't know how I would do it. And dream meaning they had dreams to be moms, but dreams for themselves too. Because like you have a dream to be a dad and you have a dream to have a career. Like you have a dream to do both. And, but there's always this hidden kind of like, but I don't think it's my privilege to dream. They'd never say it, but it was this unwritten thing. Hmm. And so I started this blog in retrospect. It was this idea of the importance for every person is on this psychological journey to become whole, like based on Jungian psychology or Jungian psychology. And every man and every woman has to learn how to be a ship and every man and woman has to learn how to be a harbor. So the harbor is the nurturing piece. One of the things that's so amazing to me is the priesthood teaches men how to be a harbor. Hmm. It's what the priesthood teaches you how to do. It teaches you how to love. It teaches you how to serve. When you go out and do your work, you learn how to be a ship. Hmm. You go out and you figure out how to fend for yourself. And so the better you are at being a ship, the better you can be a harbor because you know what it's like to be out being a ship. You figure out how to be a harbor. But the better harbor you are, presumably you can become a good ship as well. And so this book turned out to be me encouraging a lot of women to learn how to be a ship because I'd learn how to do that. But it was also an homage or an homage, depending how you pronounce it, to all these women who were amazing harbors. Mm. And I wasn't a very good harbor. I was like trying to figure out like, how do I really do this whole homemaking thing? I had children, but I didn't feel like I knew how to do it very well. And I was paying homage to all of them of okay, so wow, like you've got seven children and you're amazing. And I'm trying to understand and learn how to do it. So that book came about um, sort of, I was blogging and then the book came out in 2012. So that came out when I had already started the fund. So it was kind of project that had started in 2006, but the fund we started in 2007. And then I left and sold my stake in the fund in 2012. And the book came out, Dare Dream Do came out that year. Wow. And that that got uh, gave you a taste of of being an author. You, it did. I, I'm assuming you liked it. I did. Yeah. It's. Have you written a book? Uh, well, no, but uh, I, I've tried. Okay, I, I'm trying. Okay, good. So. <laughs> well, so one of the things, the great things about writing a book is that it. Well, first of all, it legitimizes you. It gives you sort of yeah. a platform, like, oh, you've got a book. You must have something to say. There's just something about that yeah. physical piece of it. But I think the more important part of it is it requires you to codify what you actually think because you're committing something to paper and it's putting it out into the world. Yeah. And so that intellectual rigor is really important. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough process, but that, I, it's so important. I feel like it's easy to sort of blog online and you can go back and edit or change or delete. Yeah. But a book is, there's something final about you know putting it into print. Yeah. Yeah. There is. And also, again, it's just sort of this body of work. I don't know. There's something yeah. so... Yeah, you should do it. I, okay. I recommend All it. Right. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> okay, um, I dare you to. My first book is called Dare Dream Do So. You just oh, consider there it yourself is. dared. Okay, I am dared. <laughs> now, then your your second book, I think, is sort of your 
your flagship work yeah, right now. I think um, that's right. That's a good description. Which is called D- uh, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. And this concept of disruptive innovation comes from Clay- Clayton right. Christensen's work, right? right? And I mean, you were probably at ground zero with that stuff. Yeah. Well, not ground zero because he, I mean, he came out with a theory. Basically, he hit the scene and his Innovator's Dilemma came out in 1997. So it's been out for 20 oh, wow. years now. Wow. So let me give you the theory of disruption in a nutshell yeah. and then talk to you about how my work builds on that. This is probably difficult to put in a nutshell. but uh, No, I can do it. Okay. All I right, can let's... do it. So a disruptor is a silly little thing that takes over the world. What do I mean by that? Well, you had the telephone take over the telegraph. You had the light bulb take over the gas lamp and the car, the horse and buggy. Yeah. More recently, you had someone like Toyota disrupt General Motors and Netflix, Blockbuster, and Uber, Airbnb. Okay, so that's what a disruptor is. Now, when you choose to disrupt yourself, you consciously make the choice to become a silly little thing in some way, loss of prestige, loss of money, et cetera, because you believe that in doing that, you'll be able to, in some form or another, take over the world. Mm -hmm. At the very least, take over your world. And so that's what the disruption is. Now, where I took it is I said, all right, this is really interesting to me, but at a very high level, this framework of disruption is a framework for managing change. Mm-hmm. And the change begins with the individual. Mm. So I've spent the last five, six years codifying that process, researching and codifying it, creating a seven-point framework of personal disruption. Nice. And so Clayton Christensen, he in his books, he talks in the in, in the business context of the, the Netflixes and you know, there's many, many examples. But even Netflix, you could say, is disrupting network television at this point, right? They've, totally. I mean, when I remember seeing those uh, envelopes of Netflix come in. I never thought they're going to produce some of the most watched They're going to produce The Crown. Know. Yeah, The Crown. Which I mean, is amazing. Have you yeah, seen that? Absolutely. Be oh. my wife. We watch it. So it's a good one. And so, and I, so I like this, the spin you've took with it that how can we, because nobody's really... I mean, it's good for CEOs and boards of directors, mm-hmm. and it, but a lot of us aren't running a business that we're thinking, how can I disrupt you know, my competitors or how can I really take a statement, make a statement in this industry? But everybody has a world that they live in. They do. And they can be a force in that world. They do. Right? And sort of taking a pivoting towards the context of, of the church, this is so interesting to me because I have to use the example of, I remember I was in a YSA ward. I was called as Elders Quorum President, and I went through the same process that every other Elders Quorum President had, has, is, which is, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure out home teaching, and we're going to do it. The other past Elders Quorum Presidents, they just haven't spent enough time with it. And so I did the typical guilt trip lesson. You know, I, I agonized over the assignments and making sure, well, if I can just get these right, you know, then then they'll start doing it. And I remember my percentage from the first month to the, my second month went down a percentage. I'm like, ah, oh. I was like, so devastated that I'm really trying to make a difference. And so in the in the analysis context, I think people, they want to be disruptive. They want to see change. They want to be the force of that change, but I don't know what to do, or I'll just do what the last guy did, or, you know, what does the handbook tell me? Well, the handbook tells me to do ABC. And so I guess I'll just do ABC and, and then show up next week and do ABC again, right? So if you were coaching a brand new Relief Society president, yeah. for example, on how she could be a disruptive force in her ward, mm-hmm. what, where would you start? Such a great question. Or is that the place to start? Or is there a better I don't way? Know. To, okay. It doesn't matter. We'll okay. figure it out All right, as let's we go, do this. right? Um, <laughs> one of the actual, so I'll, I'll talk through the, let me give you just a quick overview of the seven levers or okay. uh, of change, and then we can talk through them. So the first one is to take the right kinds of risks, which means to take on market risk rather than competitive risk. Because we tend to take on competitive risk to do exactly what other people are doing because it looks more certain and we like things that are certain. And yet the theory of disruption will tell you is that um, your odds of being successful are higher when you take on market risk. So let's play that out for a second. Okay. Um, and we'll take them each in turn. The advice I would give a Relief Society president or actually a bishop even is, um, is when you you need to know what the handbook says because this is what God wants you to know. So those are the rules, right? Right. This is the rules. But you start to take on competitive risk when you try to do it exactly like the person who before you did it because then you're trying to be like them. And um, that's they had their talents and you've got your talents. And so you take on market risk by playing where no one else is playing and you go do it the way you would do it. 
And um, I think it's always easier in a ward when the Relief Society president or the bishop is completely different than the person before because it's a lot easier to do it because they won't even try because they yeah. know they can't be like that person. Um, but the very first tenet would be is you play where no one else is playing. You take a market risk. And in the context of the church, I would say, is you do it the way you would do it. So maybe one bishop, in fact, I, I, can, I can think of in our ward last right now, um, the prior bishop, the emphasis was on, um, I think it was on reclaiming people who had gone inactive or no, it was on baptizing. And then this next bishop said, no, we need to focus on reclaiming. So like gotcha. here's, you know, during my ministry, my inspiration, God has told me and called me, this is what we need to do. And so be willing and understand that you're going to get your own inspiration and revelation for how the ward needs to be led at this particular point in time. So that's how you would take on market risk within a, an ecclesiastical yeah. or church context. And I would guess a lot of people, they don't, you know, you talk about uh, market risk versus competitive risk. And from my experience, it seems like leaders don't even pick one of the risks. They just sort of say, uh, well, I'm supposed to, as long as there's a lesson on Sunday, we're good, or rather than planting their flag in something and saying, this is the direction we're headed. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Yeah, and I wonder why why do you think that is? I mean, I've obviously never been a bishop. And it's interesting that you're having we're having this conversation. I, I don't know if it's because I've always worked. I've never been a Relief Society president. Uh-huh. I've never been a primary president. I've never so better find some wood to knock on. Yeah, this is- <laughs> no, I, I mean and it's and it's yeah, yeah. and it's all good because I've yeah. had the callings that I'm supposed to have. It's sure. it's good. But why do you think that do you think that do you think that leaders don't plan a flag because they're just so overwhelmed by the ministry part of their you know, or overwhelmed by the administering part. I don't know. Yeah. What, what yeah. do you think it happens? My opinion, I guess, looking back, and I would say that a lot of people, it, it is an overwhelming call that it can be so reactive that yeah. there's no time to be proactive. Right. Right. And so I remember the first day being set apart as a bishop, the executive secretary said, here's your appointments. And all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, meet this appointment, the next appointment. And then you don't have a, unless you're in, intentionally taking it, you don't have a time to step back and take a breather and say, okay, what are we going to do here? And then suddenly, wow, that was a fast five years and right. I'm getting released because they're right. just so so reactive. Yeah. And I think this is where the idea of you know management strategy, which is certainly beyond my pure purview, but this particular part of it is like thinking about what am I going to accomplish before I even walk yeah. in the door and having one thing you're going to accomplish. Like I yeah. think we sometimes try to get too many things done. If I can get this one thing accomplished while I'm in this leadership role, I'll consider it a success. Do you feel like, you know, from your business background, do you feel like a lot of businesses make that same mistake where they're, they're just so, we just have to make payroll every week that they forget that they don't Yeah, even... and I think a lot of managers do that too. Instead yeah. of really thinking, okay, like, what do I want to get done in this role? And what do I want the people who I just hired get done in this role? Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, in having a plan for they're going to be in this role, they're going to be the bishop, they're going to be the Relief Society president for two years, for three years, for four years. What do I want them to yeah. get done during that time? And that's a great place for them, that leader to start is just ask themselves that question. Right. What is it I want to accomplish? Right. And I'm, you know, as we're talking, I'm thinking, wow, have I done that? Like I'm Laurel advisor right now. I've been there for like nine months. Have I sat down and said, mm. because you know, cobbler's children have no shoes. <laughs> have I thought, what will I consider a success when yeah. I'm released? I think it's a good exercise yeah. for us. And I think it, some may do that and it's easy to default to, you know, using the Elders Quorum example, oh, well, I want to, you know, get in the 90% of home teaching. Like there's these answers that are sort of culturally out there that right. I'm just supposed to do that. Right. I'm supposed to be the home teacher guy. But it sounds like with taking a market risk, that's a competitive risk, right? If you're totally. just assuming, totally. yeah, we're just going to, we're going to be really good at home teaching and I'm going to, I'm going to outdo the last president, but really taking market risk is stepping back and saying, what if we didn't focus on home teaching? Right. What else would we focus on? Right. What if what if Heavenly Father wants us to focus on making sure that families get to the temple? Like, I mean, you just don't know. Yeah. You just don't know. And that's what the market risk is, is right. being willing to take on that uncertainty and play where no one else is playing and go to Heavenly Father and say, I mean, remember, we're coming into these callings with a brain. We're coming to these callings with all this accumulated experience. And Heavenly Father, it's not like he compartmentalizes it and say, says, okay, well, six days of the week, you're a chemical engineer, but I don't want you to ever take any of that training that you've had right. on Sunday. Yeah. Like, no. Right. He wants you to take everything that you've learned and bring it to bear on that problem that you need to solve, right. which actually goes to my second one. Let's do it. It's play to your distinctive strengths. It's not only what you do, it's what you do well that others around you don't. An example of a distinctive strength or someone who has a cons- distinctive strength is the koala. 
so the koala, like, you know, this cuddly little animal, yeah, it sleeps 20 cute. hours a day. Um, <laughs> and so you're like, well, if it sleeps 20 hours a day, how does it possibly eat? Well, it eats, it survives because it eats eucalyptus leaves, which are poisonous to pretty much every other animal in the animal kingdom, including humans. Oh, wow. And so this is its distinctive strength. And so what I would say is for a new leader is how do you go into that role, into that calling and use your strengths. So I'll give you a great example in my calling right now. So we've got a young women's leader or the president of young women's. She's in her mid thirties. She's a full-time mom. She's got a daughter with Down syndrome. She loves homemaking. She loves sewing. She loves sports, like all these things. Then there's me who's in her fifties and I am, I love my career. My children are growing. I can barely cook. And so although I make really good chocolate chip cookies. Um, <laughs> noted. And so I think, t- I think to myself, okay, so if I go into this calling and try to be to these girls what our young women presidents are doing, then that's a huge fail. Mm. But if I go into this calling, and one of the things I felt pretty prompted to do is to be kind of on their case about college. Are you going to college? Have you gotten your applications into college? Like that's something that's a distinctive strength that I have because hmm. of my background, yeah. because of what I've studied, because of what I cared about. And if you'll combine what you do well that other people don't with playing where no one else is playing, then there's this flywheel effect of being able to move up a learning curve really quickly and be very successful in your calling. Love that. I mean, every and that applies to every calling that every they calling. just step back and say, what am I bringing to the table? And right. that's, that's going to be my thing. Right. You know? Right. And not right. just... Again, going through the motions of doing what the last guy did or, you know, okay, this is the lesson I'm supposed to teach. I'll just teach it. But even as a teacher, you could ask, what's my thing? Well, like, I'll give you another example. So I, as I make a living doing speaking and consulting and advising. And so with our young women, you know how we just change the curriculum and they want us to have these councils? Yeah. Well, like I do that naturally. Mm. And so when we're having these lessons, like I do not do all the talking. Like these girls what do you think? What are your comments? There's no right answer. I want to hear what you're saying. But that's a strength that I have of wanting to be able to really engage with them. And so I need to make sure that I bring that to the table and not think, well, because the young women's president teaches a lesson this way, I should teach that way. No. I should look at the lesson. I should get my inspiration. And then I should teach these girls in the way that I feel they need to be taught because Heavenly Father called me to this calling at this time for these young women or young men or, or yeah. et cetera. What would you say to a leader who just says, oh, I just, I, I don't, I just don't have strengths. I just, you know, I'm just the, the koala that sleeps. I don't, Yeah. <laughs> how, how do we find these or pinpoint them if um, we're sort of at a loss to. Yeah. To- so, so I would say a couple of things, a couple suggestions. First of all, that's poppycock. <laughs> right. But once we get past that, right. a couple of suggestions I would make is number one is think about what makes you feel strong. You do a lot of things every single day. And there are some things, if you start making a note, like a check mark or an X after you finish one activity, like you're going to finish this podcast, you'll finish. You're like, do I feel energized? Do I feel depleted? If you feel energized, put a check. Hmm. You're going to find that over time, there's this pattern of where you have your check marks and that's going to point you in a direction of a strength. Another way you can figure out is like, what exasperates you? What do you look at and you like, this is such common sense. Like, why can't these people get this right? (laughs) Yeah. Guess what? That's it. That's one of your strengths. Like whenever someone says to you, oh, anybody would do that. And I'm sure you've heard that. You Uh have people in your ward all the time. Oh, anybody would know to do that. Bingo. You just hit on one of your strengths. And the third one is compliments. What compliments do you dismiss all the time? And we're really good at deflecting compliments like, oh, no, but yeah. Like if you'll start (laughs) writing down the compliments that you're getting, that's going to tell you, okay, these are my, this is my genius. This is my superpower. And I need to make sure that whatever those things are, I am bringing those to my calling. Yeah. And then the fourth thing that I would say to you is patriarchal blessing anyone. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's going to tell you what your spiritual gifts are. That's going to tell you, it might even tell you some other things. And so I think, oh, 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 oh. And another tip is look at what your favorite callings have been. Hmm. Because if you look at, if you go back and you catalog your favorite callings, you know, the ones that you were just like, oh, I was, this was so fun. I loved this calling. It's going to give you really good information about what your strengths are. Yeah. 
Wow. And I'm just thinking, what a fantastic exercise to do with maybe a presidency in your presidency meeting. Yes. Does help identify oh, everybody. And you know how you can do that? Yeah. Which makes it really easier is you can have, instead of, you can say to, so the president can say, okay, we want to talk to Janelle right now. And I want everybody to write down on a piece of paper what Janelle's superpowers are. Hmm. Because everybody in the presidency knows what Janelle's superpowers are. Janelle might not know. Yeah. But the presidency does. And then they read them out loud. Yeah. And then you take it a step further and say, are you using these strengths deliberately on purpose in your calling to serve? Because yeah. sometimes we use our strengths like in this haphazard, I'm in a desperate situation sort of way. Nice. Love that. Should we move on to the third yeah, one? Sure. Okay. What's the third one? Okay. Third. I'll go through the next couple pretty quickly. So number three is embrace constraints. We need constraints to climb a curve. And I think in the church, because it's a volunteer organization, we always have constraints. We've got you know, a lack of time. We've got a lack of money. We've got a lack of everything. So the way I would think about that in your calling is how do you turn those constraints into a tool of creation? Mm. How do you say, okay, well, we don't have enough people to do X. How do we, you know, how do we flip that on its head? Something that just came into my mind, and I don't think this is actually an issue, but you know, think about when we first had to start cleaning the chapel. Yeah. You know, everybody's a janitor. Oh my goodness. I was so mad. I was so like annoyed. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Just hire people to clean the chapel. <laughs> now, it's probably not true that the church couldn't afford to right. hire someone to clean it. But that to me is a great example of turning a constraint into a tool, a tool of creation. Because I will tell you, every time I come back from cleaning the chapel, I feel so good. Huh, yeah. Like I feel, and so there's this sense of worship and a sense of ownership that I would never have felt if I weren't one of the janitors. Yeah. And so, and I'm sure there are many leaders out there can automatically point towards some constraints, but you take some times to maybe create some constraints in yes. your quorum or group. Yes. You need constraints because if you think about it, you need friction and friction's a constraint. Like you can't go, remember that talk, in fact, the talk by Elder Bednar that he gave a few conferences ago about the man who was stuck in the snow. Oh yeah. And they had to put and he what put the allowed logs him down the snow. Yeah. It was the logs. It was the load. Yeah. It was the load that got them out. So yeah, what I would say is if you've got people in your in your ward that actually I'll give you a great example of how you create constraints. I remember when we were in Manhattan, you have best and brightest kids there, right? They're all going to school, these amazing schools. And they divided our ward. And I was like, why are they dividing our ward? I love our ward. This is so fun. And I had this really strong spiritual impression that they divided our ward because you had these kids here. Actually, we were one of those kids at that point that were here and our brains were being pushed and tested. And we needed something that was equally hard spiritually. Mm. And by dividing the ward, that could happen. If they'd kept us as one word, it wouldn't happen. So we needed something, you know, it's a lot easier to be the hymn book coordinator than it is to be an elders quorum president. And you needed more people to have the opportunity to be yeah. the elders quorum president. So at the very time that their brain muscle was flexing, their spiritual muscle was flexing too. That is an example of turning a constraint into a tool of creation. Yeah. And, and it's an opportunity for, you know, sometimes in a word council meeting, someone will bring up an obvious constraint of the ward and, and for the bishop to say, yeah, and that's that's awesome. a good thing. Yeah. Figure something out. What a blessing that is, right? right? Remember Elder Carmack's talk? You probably don't because this is a long time ago. I, I do remember Elder Carmack. The priesthood, the power of the priesthood and how like we in the church operate as if the priesthood was a light bulb and we need to start turning it on like it's 10,000 light bulbs. Like huh. figure something out. Yeah. It's not, you know, don't just use your learning. Yes, use your learning, but use your priesthood power. Yeah. What about in the context of, you know, calling certain people? I've been in many meetings with a bishopric or stake presidency where we're just sort of, you know, trying to figure out the right fit. And it's easy to point towards their constraints, their personal constraints, like, oh, that wouldn't work. Should we be more open to those constraints when calling people to positions? I think so. I think as leaders, we need to be really prayerful. We need to be aware of those constraints. We need to be prayerful because I think that if if that person really needs to be called to that position, God will insist that you call them. Yeah. And I also think that it's important to recognize that to allow the person to say, here are my circumstances. I'm going to give you another example from my life. So we were living in New York. We had a young, our son was like a year and a half. I was working 70 hours a week. My husband's the bishop of a young single adult ward. Like we're, we're maxed out, <laughs> but I'm also feeling very isolated because my husband's not going to church with me. I'm going to church every Sunday and everybody thinks I'm, I have no husband. Yeah. And I 
it's really hard. And the bishopric comes to me and says, we want to extend you a calling to be an extraction worker. I was like, okay, <laughs> that's going to isolate me even more. Yeah. Wow. So I prayed about it and I went back to him, the council, I think it was the counselor. And I said, I really, cause I didn't have a calling at that point in time. I said, I feel like you were inspired to extend me a calling, but I don't feel like this is the calling. Hmm. I said, will you go back and pray about it and just find out, just make sure this is the calling that, that I'm supposed to have right now. So he comes back and for the first and only time in my life, they said, you can have any calling you want. You can be a Relief Society teacher. You can be the spotlight <laughs> coordinator. You, you tell us what you want. So, of course, I'm like, I want to be the Relief Society teacher because like, you all know that's the best calling in the church. <laughs> I get the revelation I'm supposed to be the spotlight coordinator. Well, sounds like a made-up calling. But for a person who was feeling very isolated, yeah. this allowed me to once a week go out, have lunch with someone, interview them get to know them, and then spotlight them in church. Within a couple months, I didn't feel isolated anymore. And women were being spotlighted. So I think, I know we've kind of wound our way somewhere else, but I think that's a time of a constraint. Can you turn? So back to your original question, yes, I think sometimes we make assumptions about people constraint. And I think we need to sort of say, okay, let me pray about it. And then, then say to them, this is how I'm feeling. This is my revelation, but can you just double check on your end? You yeah. pray about it too. Because yeah. I don't think we sometimes let people pray about it. And, yeah. and also, I believe that sometimes when people say no, we haven't said to them, have you prayed about this? Yeah. We just let them say no. No. Yeah. Have you prayed about this? Are you sure that God doesn't want you to be doing this calling? Yeah. I think we That's get powerful. less no's. Yeah. And really, you know, I think, that, I think there's this uh, cultural thing that's emerged that sort of the bishopric makes the decisions and lets us know what the decision is where when we include everybody in that process of revelation, it usually comes out that it's better for everybody and we get deeper revelation because of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, should we move on to number sure. four? Okay. Number four is battle entitlement. It's the belief that I exist, therefore I deserve. And this is an interesting one. I would say that we in the church do this actually one pretty well. And one of the reasons we do it well, and this is why one thing I love about the church is that we get released. Yeah. You get released. You're not like, you know, I was even thinking, so like you're a bishop and then you're a nursery leader, you know, you're a gospel doctrine teacher and then you're teaching the nine-year-olds that are kicking your butt, right? In primary. That's what happened to me. (laughs) But I was even thinking about this the other day where we just had a new prophet, you know, President Nelson announced. I thought, you know, what was this like for Elder Uchtdorf? Yeah. Right? I think this is such a model example of what's happening. yeah, Yeah. Because he, you know, yes, he's still an apostle, but I think the natural man would feel a little bit like you'd been demoted. I think the natural man would. And yet the church teaches us you battle entitlement and you get released when you die, right? So I think that the church is uniquely, uniquely set up for us to battle this sense of I exist, therefore I deserve, or I'm important because I have this calling. It still happens. And I think we do each other a disservice when we say, oh, what's your calling now? I think we do a disservice, but I think more than probably any other organization on earth, we do a really good job of having institutionalized a way for us to battle our own sense of self-aggrandizement. Yeah. And it's it's nice to see that this happen on, on a much higher scale on, you know, mm-hmm. with the dynamic between the first presidency and the, the apostles. And and I know for me, you know, I think it's, it's, it needs to be said that sure, we would love to assume that for Elder Uchtdorf, it's not, he's hasn't even thought about, you know, this, this, feeling slighted or anything. But I know in, in my experience, you know, I come from, just moved from a stake where I was yeah, the bishop, I was in the stake presidency, and now I'm in this ward where I'm teaching the youth and the high priest once a week. And and I'd be lying to myself if I didn't have moments where I just look at the bishop like, don't you see the experience I bring to the table here? Mm-hmm. Like, give me something. Like, mm-hmm. I could really help out here, mm-hmm. you know? But it's such a, going back to this principle, it is so healthy to just sort of reset and re- be reminded it wasn't about you, you know, it's, it's, you can serve elsewhere. And I think every single person goes through that. Yeah. I think every person does. And maybe Elder Uchtdorf didn't, maybe he did, we don't know. But it's okay if you do feel that way. Right. I think it's important to say that. Right. It is. And then you just sort of say, okay, but this is, this is part of Heavenly Father just reminding me, like you said, it's not about you, it's about serving and, 
and you were in this calling because you needed to learn some things and they, they needed to learn th- some things. And now you're out of this calling yeah. because you need to learn some things yeah. and they need to learn Oh, I'm some learning. Things. That's for sure. Number five? Or- okay. Yeah. So number five is to give failure its due and uh, to recognize that every experience can be reframed as a failure or success. I think that what's interesting in the church is that on the one hand, we think that we're really good with failure sort of in the long term, but I think in the short term, we really struggle with it. And Hmm. I think what I like is this idea of mindset that we believe that our brains are plastic. There's great research by Carol Dweck called Mindset. I think that oftentimes we struggle with this in general because we say we believe we can change, but we don't always actually behave like we believe that. Hmm. So that's something I think that we could work on more and allow allow people to make mistakes. Yeah. Like and have it be okay that they make mistakes. I mean, you know, you've heard many times where, well, I can't talk about this thing that happened in really slide because everybody will judge me. So I actually sometimes I know I sometimes err on the side of talking about things that have been hard out loud just because I feel maybe because I'm getting older of like, how can I help destigmatize these things? Yeah. Like you know, here's what happened when we didn't have any money. Here's what happened, you know, and those experiences of how. So I think in the church, the way this can be applied is just to be a little bit more willing to be open about things that are hard for us, not just the acceptable difficulties like illness or death, or I have young children and I don't know how to do it, but some of the less acceptable things that we're struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I see this creep up in, uh, you know, we, we all would agree, yes, we all sin, but uh, only the real broken people have to go and talk to the bishop about right. it. Right. You know, and just by talking about that in an, an elders quorum setting or whatever and saying, you know, I had a rough time. And again, not that we want to parade around our, our weaknesses, but it does something uh, you've articulated perfectly. You give failure its due. Mm-hmm. There was a purpose for that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a horrible mistake that should never be talked about, but there's a purpose in that for us individually. And we should articulate that so that others realize that whatever the failure they're going through, right. that's valid. You know, one of the things I think that I has gotten so much easier for me is that when something doesn't work well, I think, okay, how can I make meaning of this? And I think that's one of the beauties of the gospel and something that certainly teaches us is that there's always a way to make meaning of something that doesn't work. And so how can we make meaning of whatever hasn't worked? Yeah. Any other perspectives as far as giving failure to do? Is this, is this more like an internal Uh, thing or can a leader apply it to, to whom they lead? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the other thing I would say, and I'm not sure how this applies, but what I I would say shame limits disruption, not failure. And so I think that we need to really be aware of as we're working with people in our wards is to when they have made mistakes, any kind of mistake, to not shame them. And I'll, I'll give you a getting example just recently. So our girls um, in Laurels, we had an activity and all the girls said, hey, we're going to all go to this thing. And then none of them showed up. And so last week in Laurels, we sat down and I said, oh, I want to talk about this. I said, it's okay that you couldn't come. I said, but what's important is that you knew you couldn't come and you need to learn how to say no. Hmm. So we're going to talk about how to say no, because you need to practice saying no. And so it was a way to call them on what had happened, but I'm pretty sure there was no message communicated that they were bad. Yeah. It was, here's what happened. Here's how it felt. Here's the lesson I think you need to learn. Not that, you know, you need to say yes more and you're bad because you didn't say yes more. It's you actually knew you couldn't, you had too much on your plate. So I need you to learn how to say no. Yeah. And this is an important skill for you. So I think the practical application would be is, you know, like with the elders quorum and the home teaching, how do you help tease out the difference between shame and just making mistakes? Yeah. Yeah. That's because so, you could have easily shown up and said, do, did you, do you ladies know how much I prepared for this? Like, right. man, you really hurt me. You right. know, this, the, you and then they come. feel terrible. Right. And that wasn't the point. Yeah. Cause they didn't want to hurt you. No, they just didn't know how to say yes. No. Cause they didn't want to hurt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, yeah. Exactly. So, and, and I'm finding this, you know, I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old and it's just constantly, I'm pulling myself back saying, no, don't say it like that. But what, what's the lesson they need to learn? Right? right. Not how can I make them feel bad enough that they'll never do it again? Right. But what's the lesson they need to learn right. that they can apply next time? Love that. Okay. So that's six. And then number seven is- That was five. 
Oh, that was five. What's six? Six. Oh, six is step back in order to grow. <laughs> okay. And um, so step back in order to grow. I mean, you know, certainly, oh my goodness, I just reversed them. So five is step back to grow. Six is failure, but that's okay. okay. <laughs> so step back to grow is this idea of you think about whenever you jump, you crouch before you jump, you bring your ski poles back to like race downhill and you bring your fists back in order to punch. Like you always step back in order to to grow. And, and so... Um, I think the the way that we apply this, you know, and there's lots of different ways to do this. Like you step back to think about the big picture within the church. I think you step back to grow. We've kind of touched on this already. Of you step back into a different calling in order to grow. The growth happens in different ways, but that stepping back can actually be a slingshot. Because if you think as a reminder to myself, as we're talking about this, the whole point of the church is for us to grow up spiritually. The whole yeah. point of the church is for us to be like God. And so you step back in order to slingshot forward spiritually in some form or fashion. I think being released from a calling is oftentimes very much a step back in order to grow in some way. Love that. Awesome. Uh, so now we're seven. number seven, the last okay. one. So seven is be driven by discovery. So one of the things that we discovered um, is that as a disruptor, you're in search of a yet-to-be-defined market. You're always going to have this purpose, but how you're going to get there is yet to be determined. So you're this explorer like Lewis and Clark. So remember that story of Thomas Jefferson makes the Louisiana Purchase. He sends Lewis and Clark out to figure out what he's acquired. They start in St. Louis, heading to the Pacific Ocean with keelboats, which are used on rivers, by the way. They think they have enough supplies. Well, turns out Missouri River peters out. They run out of supplies. They hunt and trade with the Native Americans. And then when they get lost, they hire a guide. Mm-hmm. and with each new discovery, they just kept having to alter their plan. And it's the same for us. So one of the things I thought was really interesting is that 70% of all successful new businesses end up with a strategy that's different than the strategy they started with. And so just like our conversation's been a little bit today, very discover-driven, because it's probably gone in a direction <laughs> Those are the funnest you were ones, right? not expecting. <laughs> As a leader in any given calling, be discovery driven. Say, okay, here's my plan, but I'm going to get new information. And I would say this especially applies with extending callings that you just brought up. You're going to have a plan. You've prayed about it. You think this person's the right person. Then you say, well, okay, John, can you come into my office? Well, I can't say to John because I wouldn't be giving a calling to John. You can say, <laughs> Whitney, can you come into my office? Yeah, yeah. I feel impressed to call you this. And then I say, well, did you know about X, Y, and Z? Now you'd have new information. So you're being discovery driven. Okay, I'm going to pray about it some more. Can you pray about it some more? And then you'll make a decision. Yeah. And so I think in the church, it's important to allow ourselves to be discovery driven. And what's interesting is that Corn Ferry, the research firm, executive search firm, did a study to come up with the leading predictors of C-suite success. I think this is true for life and for the church, the ability to deal with ambiguity. Mm. To walk into the unknown, to take a step forward, to gather feedback and adapt. Yeah. Because, right? I mean, you start day one as bishop, things within two hours, three hours, one day of interviews, whoa, totally different than what I thought our ward needed. Yeah, absolutely. So you're discovery driven. Yeah. And then you figure it out. You alter your plan. And ambiguity sometimes is, uh, it's... It maybe gets a negative connotation in, in the church a little bit that uh, we want certainty and we want, this is how principles lay out. And right. And so wanting that being motivated to step into ambiguity is, is an intentional step. You know what? You just made me think of something. Can I share oh boy, it? Let's do it. Do you know how we battle it? You know where we get in, entitled as members of the church? Where's that? Because we feel like we have it all figured out. The sin of certainty. God lives. Someday I'm going to go to the celestial kingdom. I know what's going to happen to me after I die. And I think we get a little smug. Yeah. And because, and we get smug in the sense that we don't feel this need to really, we get a little comfortable sort of intellectually and we don't sometimes dig as deep as I think we could. Not always, Yeah. but I think sometimes we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we feel sort of anointed. And so it limits us to, to right. discovery, to right. deeper discovery. Right. We have all the answers to the questions. So therefore we have no questions, but the questions is what guides us. Right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that was so beautifully said. I love that. <laughs> That's a tweetable. That needs to go in your okay, show there notes. It is. <laughs> that all was right. amazing. Wow. Wow. Uh, and I lost where I am at. So this is good. So those are the seven. Yeah. We, we, anything we missed in those seven? 
No, I think what I would say is we kind of try to kind of recap is so you've got those seven that move you along the learning curve. And then what's super exciting and interesting to me, and this is what my next book is about, Build an A-Team, is I look at it and I say every organization, every ward is a collection of learning curves. So every person's on one of these curves. And you build an A-Team, you build a high-functioning ward by optimizing those curves. So you want to have at any given time, 70% of your people in their sweet spot. So they've been in the calling two to three years. You want to have 15% of your people at the low end. They're brand new. They have no idea what they're doing. And they're asking all sorts of questions like, why can't we have the laurels go into Relief Society once a week, once a month? And then you've got 15% of your people at the high end who really know what they're doing. And so they can mentor other people. But you don't want to leave them there too long because they'll get stale because we all do. If we've been into calling too long, we get tired. We just do because our neurons like to learn. And we, when we're not learning, we get bored. It's just the way yeah. human nature works. So one of the things that to me is so beautiful about the gospel and about the structure of the church is that Heavenly Father knows how our brains work. And so he's built in so that every couple of years, he pushes us to jump to a new learning curve. So we're always staying engaged. We're always engaged. And so so that's for the individual. And then because the individual is always engaged, they're always thinking of ways that they can innovate. And then as a bishop, you're able to, I guess the advice would be is try to, you know, at any given time, have 70% of your people sort of knowing what they're doing. And then when you need to release people do, but don't release too many people at once. Don't extend too many colleagues at once because it creates some disarray. So you want to have that good balance of of where people are. I went through that really fast. Did that make sense? Yeah, no. I, and so that's the basic premise of your next book, right? Yes. Okay. And we, I think we may need to do another episode. I'll Perhaps. <laughs> I know, because I think we're out of time. That's why I wanted to just recap it really quickly, because to me, that's such a beautiful, beautiful yeah. thing about the structure and the infrastructure of the church. No, and I'm intrigued by that. And and, uh, and that's what, as I was preparing for this, I was sort of looking at both the uh, premises of, of your books. And I think maybe, we'll, maybe she wants to focus on her new book and maybe the, the old book, but we just got to take one at a time. Yeah, so exactly. We'll do it. But this exactly. is this has been so enlightening. Just understanding. I think it's so important to just give yourself permission to to disrupt yourself. Right? Absolutely. That you don't. You have to look outside the box. And and what do you the term you used of of uh, you know as far as being market competitive? Just oh, uh, market risk. Uh-huh. Yeah, market risk. Yeah. Like going living there and and being okay with that. You don't have to be like the last guy. Play in a new area, right? Right. Absolutely. And, and, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there. maybe that's our big takeaway from this session is yeah. like when you get a new calling, like figure out where does God want me to be playing in this calling and what strengths and what talents and native gifts do I have to bring to bear on this? Because that's the flywheel effect that's going to make you super, super effective in serving the people in your in your ward. Yeah. All right. Last question I have. Yep. As you look back on... You're, both your time as a leader in, in the secular world and, and in church, mm-hmm. how has leading made you a better disciple or follower of Jesus Christ? So one of the things I've been doing is I took Elder Nelson's, President Nelson's, Prophet Nelson's, <laughs> I guess it was he was president before, injunction to memorize the living Christ. Hmm. And so I've memorized it. Oh, that's great. I will not recite it for you now. <laughs> but what I will say is that one of the big ahas that I've been having recently is there are a lot of amazing ideas out in the world, like amazing ideas and amazing thinkers and people who inspire us to do better and be better. And I realized that it would be super easy to just sort of espouse those ideas. And I think by really studying the living Christ, it's reminding me that all of those things are valid. Like I read Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, some great stuff in there. Yeah. And he's a brilliant man, but the foundation is still Jesus Christ. Hmm. Like all of those things that he is doing and he thinks and all of this life that he has, he doesn't know it. He doesn't realize it. But like Elder Uchtdorf said in the in the priesthood session about the sunlight, he doesn't understand that the sunlight is always Jesus Christ. And so that's something that I feel like I am learning. I know that didn't answer your question, but that's what came into my mind. So yeah. that's what I'm sharing with you is I'm really beginning to understand, I think in a different way or perhaps for the first time of what the prophets say when they say his foundation. It's not that everything out in the world is bad and Christ is good. It's that Christ is foundational. 
and then all the good builds on that. And so I need to just remember that and focus on that and build on that and not let anything supplant it. That concludes my interview with Whitney Johnson. You know, I feel so blessed when I get to interact with some of these uh, innovative thinkers of our time and that happen to be LDS as well. And obviously, I don't think that's a coincidence, but I'm so grateful for for Whitney. And it was so fun to just see how down to earth she was. She was fun to talk to. And, uh, you know, it was such an engaging discussion. And I benefited from it. I hope you did as well. If you want to follow Whitney, go check her out on Twitter and also at WhitneyJohnson.com. Her Twitter handle is at Johnson Whitney, and uh, she's quite active there. Follow her there and and go check out her books at uh, Amazon. I'll link to all her books, but definitely worth uh, diving into and learning more about your personal leadership development by disrupting yourself. Also, if you haven't done so yet, be sure to head on over to leadinglds.org and check out the two free leadership trainings that are available there. One is our recent leadership webinar, and the other is how to hold a one-hour presidency meeting. These trainings will definitely improve your leadership efficiency and also minimize the time meetings take. Everybody needs help there, am I right? So remember, be a leader and not a calling. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.